Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts, of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, find other episodes, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. I want to thank everyone out there who filled out our Econ Talk survey. If you didn't, if you missed it, I expect you'll have another chance in the future. I hope we do another one next year. In about two weeks, I'll share the most interesting results with you. Meanwhile, based on what I've had a chance to look at so far, I can say it's an honor to be able to spend time with such an interesting and appreciative audience every week. It makes me want to make Econ Talk better and better, so keep the feedback coming. And please stay tuned after today's podcast for a brief postscript. My guest today is Tyler Cowan, my colleague here at George Mason University. Tyler blogs with Alex Tabarrok at MarginalRevolution.com and is the author of most recently Discover Your Inner Economist, a subject of a previous podcast. Tyler, welcome back to Econ Talk. Thanks for having me back. Tyler, our topic today is money monetary policy, the supply of money. It's a mysterious part of the economic universe for most of us. And my goal today is to shine some light on this dark matter. Uh, what's the money supply? What, what is this number we hear about uh, in the Wall Street Journal that gets reported, these different measures, M1, M2? What is that and why, why do we keep track of it? We use money as a medium of exchange and different measures of the money supply indicate how much money is in the economy. Uh, the quantity of money in the economy is a rough indicator of the extent of inflation. Inflation often has costs, but in some very special circumstances it has benefits. It's the job of the Federal Reserve to judiciously manage those costs and benefits. It's sometimes said that monetary theory has driven more economists mad than any other topic. Also, none of this is easy. Yeah, so let's talk about the the um, the inflation part of that. Uh, if the Fed just didn't do anything, if we just left the nominal quantity of money, the amount of currency and uh, dollars, pieces of paper and change that's floating around the economy, if the and if the government didn't do anything to make that any bigger, either by printing more money or by encouraging banks to lend money and increase the rate at which dollars turn over and transact in the economy, what would happen? What would happen if we just sort of fixed the money supply and our economy uh, just kept going? What, what would be the, the import of that? We could fix the monetary base, which is the supply of currency plus bank reserves held at the Fed. It's important to note that some broader measures of the money supply probably still would grow. So as banks make more loans, as economic activity expands, there's more money supply through the creation of credit. But nonetheless, in the longer run, there would be pressures for deflation because more goods and services would be produced, and over time, the prices of those goods and services would tend to fall rather than rise, which is what we usually see under central banking. Now, what would be the, one of the advantages of that world, uh, which I would like personally as an economic educator, is that we would see in a somewhat transparent way the real impact of growth. Right now in the in the world around us, we have salaries and incomes growing in nominal terms measured in dollars. And then because there's inflation, 
We have to deflate those to put them in real terms. And so we inevitably have a problem with the fact that the yardstick that we're deflating with is a little bit difficult to measure. And if we kept the monetary base constant, we would notice our purchasing power as prices fell, at least our purchasing power would, would appear to be expanding. But economists have generally argued that that's a bad idea. Uh, what, what Milton Friedman, for example, has suggested is that the goal of the Federal Reserve should be to increase the money supply at roughly the rate of economic growth so that we would have stable prices, so that although some prices would move up, others would move down, the overall level of prices would be roughly unchanged. And that would be even, in some sense, ideal, more ideal than, than the deflation argument. Uh, but what would be the argument for why we want a stable price level as opposed to the deflation that would exist if we uh, left the money supply roughly unchanged or the inflation we see when the Federal Reserve creates money at a rate that's uh, faster than the rate of growth of goods and services? I don't think we want either deflation or a stable price level. And the reason for this gets to human irrationality. If you tell an employee his wage will be cut by 3% this year and prices will fall by 3%. Or 4 <laughs> Or 4 Most people don't like that. They rebel. Morale suffers. Uh, they fight with the person in the next office. Some people even end up out of a job. While it might be possible over time to train people out of these expectations, I think we have them today. Uh, they won't go away anytime soon. So given that that's the case, I think we want to avoid a large number of wages having to fall in nominal terms. And like Larry Summers, I tend to favor a moderate but slight rate of price inflation, say 2 to 3% a year. So the virtue of that would be, in this, uh, for the psychological reason, is that you would get a nominal – your nominal salary, your salary measured in dollars might be unchanged or it might even go up. Uh, but it would buy less potentially, so you could get a wage cut without the psychologically unpleasant feeling that your salary was going down, even though its purchasing power would be going down. That's the claim, right? Absolutely. It's an easy way to trick people into wage cuts when necessary. Um, putting that uh, argument to the side, which I'm less enthusiastic about, but it's an interesting argument. Putting that argument to the side, there's also a historical issue of, of variability, right? So uh, general – you want to try to distinguish between nominal and real changes in prices. So if you're running a business and you see that your price is going up in a world of inflation or more importantly, a world where the price level is erratic, where inflation is unpredictable and uncertain, you have trouble distinguishing the real price that you're receiving versus the nominal price. You don't know whether your price is going up because there's, an, say, an increase in demand for your product or merely because there's inflation overall in the whole economy. It's very difficult to disentangle those effects. So some economists, many I would argue, have, have suggested that it's not so important that we have zero inflation, a st perfectly stable price level, or a little bit of inflation, as you've suggested, might be beneficial, but that we have a stable level of inflation that that there's a predictability about price changes uh, and understanding of what real price changes are so that if inflation goes up, say, 2 to 3 percent, if inflation is 2 to 3 percent, which means that the level of prices is rising 2 to 3 percent a year, then if your price is going up 5 percent or if your price is only going up 1 percent, you'd have some information and be able to make better economic decisions, correct? That's right. Broad stability is good. 
Uh, but we also should keep in mind when businesses make major commitments, they typically expect rates of return that are pretty high, say the order you know, of 30%, uh, not adjusting for risk. And uh, whether small changes in the rate of inflation really change those decisions much, uh, I'm skeptical. I think if we have a rate of price inflation fluctuating, say, between one and a half and three percent, uh, that we wouldn't much be distorting business decisions. There's uncertainty as to what price changes mean, but we have that also under deflation and even under price stability, because under price stability, a lot of particular prices are moving, right. and you're never so sure why. Correct. I think the real issue is I agree with you that, say, one and a half to three is relatively innocuous. I think the question is, you know, what happens when it goes up sometimes to 10 or 6 or 30 or sure. 50? And that's the uh, – when there's that level of variability in price increases uh, across the board, uh, it's extremely detrimental to economic decision-making uh, by, by risk takers. Um, so let's go back to the, to the Fed. Uh, in the United States and in many – most developed countries, there's a central bank, and the United States, is, it's the Federal Reserve. And it is trying, or at least some say it's trying, to control the rate of growth of the supply of money uh, and, as a result, the impact that that will have on both prices and economic activity. So what is the uh, standard macroeconomic argument for how a change in the Federal Reserve policy is going to ripple its way and lead to, say, higher prices or inflation. What's the standard argument there? There's a simple version and there's a more complicated version. No one understands the more complicated version. The simple version is that there's more money in the system. People spend and or lend out more money. There's a greater flow of purchasing power. Over time, prices rise. That pretty clearly is true. Now, the more complicated question is to ask something like the following. What the Fed is really doing is buying up treasury bills with cash. And if you compare a cash holding to a treasury bill holding, it's not clear why they're very different from the point of view of a bank. They're very different when you're leaving a tip in the coffee shop. But for a financial institution, uh, their liquidity and risk profiles appear to be relatively similar. So this mere swap of one fairly substitutable asset for another appears to have significant effects on the stock market, on short-term interest rates, and no one really knows why. Well, let's back up and, and try to give even the more basic story just so uh, our listeners who are unfamiliar with, with macroeconomics can, can see it. Uh, Milton Friedman used to use – I think it's Friedman, and correct me if I'm wrong – Friedman used to use this idea of a helicopter drop. Mm-hmm. Uh, as a sort of uh, mental experiment for how the Fed uh, could affect uh, economic activity. And I think it's useful to think about two versions of that experiment. Experiment number one, the government goes around and, and adds money to the system. People aren't sure that they're doing it. Uh, they find themselves with more cash. Uh, how that works exactly, I'm not sure myself. But uh, all they have is more green pieces of paper. They have more green pieces of paper than they normally want to hold for their uh, level of income. Their liquidity is higher than they wish it to be, and so they try to spend it. Mm -hmm. And in the Friedman story, as you try to spend that money, uh, everyone's trying to do that because everyone 
has more money. And let's make it dramatic. Let's say everybody wakes up one morning and finds themselves with twice as many green pieces of paper in their wallet. Uh, we're talking about currency now as, as the doubling of money. And they try to spend it. And there's no more stuff than there was available before. So one version of what will happen is that they'll just double the prices. The price level will double in response to this doubling of the, of the money supply. There'll be no real effects. The other version is that the recipients of the money, the stores that find people trying to spend money on their stuff, think, hey, maybe I've gotten more popular. Maybe there's an increase in the demand for my product. I'll start to hire more people. Uh, I'll expand. I'll invest in more machinery. And in this version, this expansion in the money supply has real effects. Uh, real expansion occurs, although eventually people realize, oh, it wasn't real. It was just it was just financial. It was just monetary, and the economy goes back to what it was before. And as the government continues to try to repeat this experiment to have an expansionary impact, eventually people catch on. And in the extreme version of this, the government announces with total certainty that tomorrow you'll wake up with twice as many green pieces of paper or what's called – what's the name for it? A currency um, reform. Mm -hmm. Or what if we could wake up and say from now on every dollar is $2, every $5 bill is considered a $10 bill, every 20 is considered a 40 we all understand that, that if everyone knows that's what's happening around the economy, it's unlikely that a business is going to be fooled into expanding by that reform. All they're going to do is uh, just raise their prices. That's right. So is that – do we think that's true? A better way to say it, that captures the standard theory of how – Increases in money supply could have real but often only have nominal effects on the price levels. Is there anything more to that story we need to consider? Well, a monetary surprise of the kind you outline, it can only work every now and then. That's the problem. If there's unemployment and if people aren't expecting a dose of inflation, the central bank can use some inflation to stimulate the economy. Or if you go to Western Europe where there are legal minimum wages, which are often strong and binding, Monetary inflation can increase the level of employment. Uh, the danger arises when you try to play that game too often, and then you end up with a lot more inflation and not much of an effect on employment. So I agree with everything you said. I think right now in the United States we're at a point where we have serious economic problems, but unemployment has not been very high. Uh, so inflating doesn't get us out of the problems. Inflating is just stopping the problems from getting worse. So we're getting now a higher rate of inflation, but we're not seeing it accompanied by any economic recovery. Yeah, and there's talk now that we're at risk of uh, the dread stagflation, something that happened in the 1970s that was thought to be impossible, right? So just to review a little economic uh, – history of economic thought of a very modern kind uh, – Tell us what the Phillips curve uh, was thought to be and why it is uh, not, not accepted any longer by most economists. The Phillips curve was the belief uh, discovered by a New Zealand economist, Phillips, that in the short run you could inflate a bit and lower the rate of unemployment. Now, this is still debated, uh, but in my opinion, the short run Phillips curve has held up pretty well in the data. Uh, Meaning? meaning that in the short run, if you inflate, unemployment will be a bit lower. That doesn't mean you should inflate because inflation has costs of long-run erosion and lower economic growth. Uh, but the grab bag is there, so to speak. 
I think that's one reason why we see recurring inflation. It's simply not a universally available, exploitable, at will, good idea to actually do this sort of trade-off. And what happened in the 70s is that in the United States, as the rate of inflation rose, uh, unemployment rose also because right. the, as you said, as you described earlier, the temptation to continue using this this method uh, failed, as Friedman really had had said it would. And he was the in the 70s. The existence of stagflation was really the, for some, the the death knell of of the use of of monetary policy and sometimes. You know, fiscal policy as a fine-tuning mechanism, the idea that we could guide the economy through these dangers, that we could manipulate the unemployment rate via inflation, monetary policy, uh, became a uh, challenge because the data suggested that – not just the data. I mean the experience was overwhelmingly against, the, against that possibility. When you have a negative real shock, monetary policy simply can't do very well. So in the 1970s, you have a big spike in the price of oil and an economy far more dependent on oil than it is today. So that's already giving you a higher temporary rate of price inflation, and it's putting a lot of people out of work. Now, one thing the Fed did at first in the 70s was to try to lower the rate of price inflation by deflating while the price of oil was rising. So that put even a lot more people out of work. And then they went back to inflating, which gave us a lot of people out of work, a prime rate of 20% and pretty high rates of price inflation. So they were in a bad situation. They then did everything bad, and we got in a lot of trouble. What we have today is another kind of negative real shock, uh, which you might broadly call the collapse of the real estate bubble. A good rule of thumb is when you have a negative real shock, there is no right or really good thing a central bank can do. Why do you consider the real estate bubble, um, if indeed it's a bubble, uh, why do you consider that a real shock? Isn't it, isn't it, I mean, in the case of the oil story in the 70s, you know, basically the United States had less access to energy, which it was, price was higher, but also there was just less available, which was the source of the higher price. And that encouraged a whole set, put, a, put in motion a whole set of things that were not so attractive. Uh, I don't, I'm not sure we totally understand that story, by the way, but let's put that to the side. Isn't just this housing situation a nominal a change in the price of an asset that perhaps was overstated now just be understated? I think there's been a shock to credit. So for a while, a few years ago, you have people systematically thinking that some pretty risky assets aren't risky at all. And then people wake up, say last August, whenever, and they decide those assets really are risky. And in portfolios, you have a big sectoral shift towards safer assets, toward things like treasury bills. And you have a lot of credit flows dry up, and you have a lot of financial markets like junk bonds, even some short-term securities, where trading just literally shuts down in a way that we as economists don't understand very well. So the real shock, I think, is to credit. It's initially caused by the popping of the real estate bubble. Uh, but the problem is people don't know how to evaluate risk, and the mechanism of credit has slowed down. Yeah, that's the, the, that's the worry. I, I'm not sure it's true. I, the claim is is that there are it's hard that there's not enough transparency uh, in people's portf in institutional portfolios, right? So it's hard to know just how risky some asset is. And um, I don't know how important that is. I understand the argument that that if people have trouble assessing risk for whatever reason, 
that's going to cause a movement toward caution, right? A movement toward safer assets. That in turn is going to cause the uh, credit out there to, to shrink, and that shrinking is going to have real effects. That that's true. The question is, is, is it true that there's going to be a shrinking of credit because of this lack of transparency? There are some indications, right, that these mortgages were packaged together in in uh, novel ways that were difficult to, to read and that people just sort of accepted on some sort of faith or goodwill or hoped it would work out okay. But I just don't know how untransparent the situation is now. I, I don't know. Do you have any Well, idea? I think there's a shrinking of credit, but I would sooner stress – the sectoral reallocation of credit away from risky assets. So global savings as a whole, as far as I know, it's not down. And that money goes somewhere. It's just not funding risk in the way it, that it had. And the economy has to make that readjustment. Sure. And that's a very bumpy path. I think why trading in so many assets has dried up is the fundamental puzzle. We would still think at economists, as economists that you would trade those assets, but at their expected average value. And maybe there's a lemons problem, but you'd think there'd be some price at which, say, these junk bonds would simply continue to trade. I think what we're learning is that there's some basic infrastructure behind market trading, just to say rule of law matters to get your economic reforms to work. And parts of that infrastructure have somehow gone away or, or gone dormant. And uh, price signals have been removed from the market, and people don't know what to do. There's also an agency problem. If you're a portfolio manager, you might just prefer to wait and park your money in safe assets rather than be blamed yeah. in a time when a lot of other people are being blamed. Yeah. And if a lot of people do that, that like literally pulls information out of market prices. And you get – it's not like the socialist calculation debate because you have markets, but you're not getting as much information injected into those markets as we've been used to. And until we adjust to not having that information, we're not seeing a credit market recovery. Yeah, that's, that's an interesting interesting perspective. I, I think that's there's some truth to that. I particularly like the idea that that under certain behavioral uh, rules of thumb, you you might uh, lose some of the informational content that's in prices. But let's go back to the Fed, which I think is, again, a source of, of great confusion for most of us. When I was uh, in graduate school, uh, the Fed affected the money supply via what were called open market operations, the buying and selling of treasuries, as you discussed in the very beginning of this conversation. That I think they still do that. Um, uh, but that's not what gets reported. All of the focus is on one thing, which is the discount rate, the rate that the Fed charges member banks. And for a while, the Fed raised that rate, uh, and then when there was a fear that that was hurting the growth of the economy or because the growth of the economy was slowing for other reasons, in recent meetings, the Fed has been lowering that rate. Now, the way I would understand this, being a monetarist, and no one else seems to understand it this way, certainly the press doesn't understand this this way or the person in the street, but the way I would understand it is that by changing that discount rate, by changing the interest rate, the uh, I, th I think the technical term is the federal funds rate, by changing that rate, they are either encouraging when they lower the rate or discouraging when they raise the rate, member banks to lend because each bank has a certain 
requirement of reserves it has to have. There's unpredictability about what comes in and comes out on any given day. And so member banks, by member banks, I mean normal private banks, use the Fed as the lender of last resort as a way to comply with the regulatory uh, regime that they're, they're under. So when the Fed changes that rate, they're changing the cost of making a mistake. So when the Fed lowers that rate, they've basically said to banks, you can be more aggressive in lending because coming to us if things don't turn out perfectly well on any given day is cheaper than it used to be. So you can make loans that you normally might not have made. And similarly, if, if the Fed raises that rate, they've said to banks, hey, you make a mistake now, it's going to cost you more than it did before. Is that correct? Is that what the Fed's doing when it changes that rate? I think most people think what it's doing is trying to, quote, change interest rates. They're not the same thing, those two stories. We need to keep in mind the Fed is dealing with two different rates. There's the discount rate, which is the rate at which member banks borrow from the Fed, and there's the federal funds rate, which is an interbank rate. I think the Fed itself. I confused the two of them. So, so let's. Well, I'm not sure if you've confused them, but I'll I'll stress the <laughs> distinction in any case. I think the Fed itself has admitted the discount rate doesn't much matter. If you're a distressed bank and you want to borrow money from the Fed, the main cost of doing that is you immediately get a phone call saying, "Hey, what's going on?" And word word gets out to the whole world, and you come under a lot of scrutiny, and that's a big, big cost. It's a much bigger cost than the interest rate you have to pay on the loan. So when the Fed changes the interest rate on loans from the discount window, it just doesn't matter much because the big cost, the scrutiny, the questions is there in any case. And the Fed, in essence, set up something called term auction facility, which bypassed its own discount window and was a way of admitting its own discount window just wasn't very effective. So when we read in the paper that the Fed cut rates by a quarter of a point or half a point, what rate are we talking about? Usually, but not always, that refers to the federal funds rate. Which, which is, is an interbank rate. And the Fed, it doesn't cut that rate in the sense that a 7-Eleven owner cuts the price of orange juice, but the Fed will put more liquidity into the system by buying T-bills with money, newly created money. A greater supply of loanable funds through supply and demand will push down rates of interest. And it's a market adjustment, but stimulated by the Fed adjusting the quantity of available loanable funds. So it's still through that rate, it is changing the money supply and the traditional monetary policy story that that we told at the beginning of this podcast, correct? That's correct. Keep in mind, the Fed is lowering the short-term rate. It may not be lowering long-term rates. Presumably, it can't affect long-term rates, although people... It can make them go up if people expect more inflation. <laughs> True. Or it can have a very small effect on lowering them if it does everything exactly right, but that's a small effect. So you're at best pushing around the short-term rate, and there's no real guarantee what banks will do with that money. You can get that money, quote-unquote, lent out. But if it just sits around, or if it funds a project that would have been done anyway, or if it refits the automatic teller machines in a bank, it's not exactly stimulating business investment in the, in the grand sort of way we might like to imagine it in our macro theories. So there's no guarantee that the Fed changing interest rates in this manner will have that much of an effect on investment. I want to digress for a moment, and we're going to come back to this Fed policy thing, but I want to digress for a moment and talk about Irving Fisher. A brilliant man. Yeah, uh, who gets a lot of bad press because he was optimistic about the economy in 1929. But let's put that 
uh, forecast to the side. He wasn't alone. Uh, he understood something profoundly important that I think is often misunderstood about interest rates. He broke interest rates into two parts, a real part and a nominal part. He basically said that interest rates reflected two things, the, the productivity of the, of the loan in real terms, w what would grow on the basis of the activity that would take place. That's the real part. And then there's the nominal part, which is the part that's due to inflation. So if you expect, if everyone expects inflation to be 10% in the coming year, I'm never going to lend money at anything less than 10% because the money you pay back to me when, when you pay back my loan is going to buy uh, less than it did before because of the expected inflation. And as a result, I'm going to want at least 10%. So there's a, a inflation premium built into interest rates is what Fisher understood. And so when we talk about an interest rate being, say, 15%, normally we would say, well, the real rate is 3 and that 12% on top of that is a premium that, that borrowers have to pay to induce lenders to give up money for the year because of, of impending inflation. So this leads to a paradox that you've just alluded to that I, I want our, our listeners to hear, which is normally we think of supply and demand, which you invoked, of money as lowering interest rates when we expand the supplies. We expand, we, we throw liquidity into the system. We The, the Fed adds money. And normally we think that's going to drive down interest rates because there's more of something. The price, the interest rate is something like the price of money. Not exactly, but something like. But if the Fed continues to do that, if the Fed continues to put money into the system, it will actually raise nominal interest rates, the interest rates we observe because there becomes an expectation of inflation. So this also constrains the Fed. And I think when people read about the Fed's actions, uh, they're confused often because of this, this uh, tension that's inevitable. That's right. In the short run, if the Fed only does it once, they can lower short-term real rates without raising nominal rates because the short-term rate, say, is three to six months, and for new money to cause price inflation might take nine months, a year, or even more. So any one time you do it, you get the lower rate, and you don't the lower real rate, you don't get a higher nominal rate in the short term. But if you keep on doing it and people know more and more inflation is coming, you end up with high nominal rates. And I would go even further than Irving Fisher. I think high nominal interest rates are very bad for an economy because we do not all face the same price level. So a higher nominal rate is not the same rate for all of us. What it means is a higher variability of real rates for everyone. And that's bad. It's also greater uncertainty. Uh, some people have a very low real rate. Some people have a very high real rate, depending upon the personal price level they care about. And it's one of the most important distortions of a high nominal interest rate that's usually ignored. That's a good point. So going back to our conversation about the Fed, when we read in the paper that the Fed has, quote, raised interest rates, and it's referring usually to the federal funds rate, what you're suggesting is that what has actually happened is that the Fed has intervened in the market for treasuries, and by raising rates, they have taken money out, some money out of the system, reduced the rate of growth of the money supply, which normally would be lowering the rate of inflation. And yet, I think it's often talked about through a different mechanism. And this is just – I want to just 
beat this horse a little bit because I think it's a source of tremendous confusion. The press typically writes about the Fed's impact on the economy via interest rates, not this monetary transmission that, that we're discussing. They say things like, the economy's growing too quickly. This was, say, not right now, but a few years ago. The economy's growing too quickly. The Fed's nervous about it. And so they're raising rates to try to slow the economy down. Why? Because if interest rates are higher, people are going to take fewer risks. They're going to be more careful. They're going to be more cautious. They're not going to um, invest in as many things. Uh, things will have to reach, have a higher rate of return to make it worthwhile to invest. And now what's going on is that the Fed's worried about today in, in February or March of 2008, March, in March of 2008, because the Fed's worried that the economy's slowing down, they're trying to stimulate it. And the way they're stimulating it is they're lowering interest rates. That'll encourage people to, to invest because they'll have, it's easier to, to, to make projects worthwhile. And that's not the mechanism you're suggesting that, that's actually going on. What they're really doing is, is not trying to in, influence investment decisions and the overall uh, um, aggregate demand in the in the in that Keynesian sense of C plus I plus G of consumption plus investment plus government spending, they're just trying to change the the liquidity of the economy. Is that correct? It's complicated. Uh, I mostly agree with that. If you look at the data, it's very hard to actually show that within normal ranges, higher or lower real interest rates much affect business investment. You really have to, to torture the data to get any result at all. It seems just ordinary cash flow is the best predictor of how much a business invests. And that, I think, is ultimately common sense. If you're aiming for a threshold return of 30 40% on your investment and the rate of interest goes from 3 to 5%, it may not matter very much for you. Uh, it seems to me a, a big way the Fed has an effect, it's poorly understood, but that somehow credit markets as a whole take a kind of cue from the Fed. What the Fed does helps frame how credit markets perceive risk. And it's in part the flow of liquidity as represented by the new dollars or the dollars taken away. But sometimes more important is this framing of credit risk and framing of future economic conditions. There's a kind of psychological contagion effect. And managing that is more of an art than a science, but I think that's actually where a lot of the Fed's influence comes from. Yeah, one of the weirder things of response to the Fed is the stock market will often respond allegedly to Fed action. And again, we read about this in the press. The market reacted this way, that way. Of course, there are other things going on beside the Fed. It's hard to disentangle them from what the Fed actually did. Um, but but it is a uh, – there are these sort of um, – Let's say it differently. Information, people get information from what the Fed does, which is another way to say what you just said, I think. The next great frontier for behavioral economics really is to understand banks and financial institutions. And I've hardly seen any work done on that. There's a lot of work on stock markets, but in terms of lending and risk perception, it's mostly virgin territory. And just to clarify, when you're talking about a 30 to 40% return, you're not talking about individual investors, obviously. You're talking about a business taking a risk on a very large project, a new factory, a new product design, where there's a lot of uncertainty about what's going to happen. Most of the time, it fails. Absolutely. And so the 30 40% is what you get from the winners to offset the losers and give you a normal rate of something closer to 10. 
perhaps. And the, and the hard thing to predict is, does anyone want the new product at all? Not will my interest payment seven years from now be you know two percent or four and a half percent? Sure, that matters, but it's in the broader picture of relevant uncertainties, it's a relatively small factor. And again, that's at modern rates of inflation in the last twenty-five years or fifty years of the United States. In times of hyperinflation, when inflation could be a hundred percent a year or four hundred percent a year, then it would matter. Obviously, um, let's turn to a different topic. Um, one of the Let's talk about what I want to turn to for the for the some part, if not all, the remainder of this conversation is is alternatives to the Fed. Uh, there are a lot of people who don't like the Fed, think the Fed is dangerous, think the Fed is harmful to the economy. Uh, I don't see it that way. If you look at at the data, which uh, we talked about in some of the earlier podcasts with Milton Friedman, uh, macroeconomic variability in the United States has become very small. The business cycle is much, much less uh, variable than it was, uh, say, 50 or 100 or 150 years ago. And I would attribute some of that, maybe most of it, to the smoothing and um, hand of the Fed on the money supply. That all the Fed, although the Fed often makes mistakes, although it often finds itself finds itself slamming on the brakes without realizing that it needs to be hitting the accelerator. The overall performance of the Fed as a um, as providing the liquidity that the economy needs to move smoothly seems to have been extremely well done. A lot of people don't feel that way. They think we ought to move to a different way of controlling the money supply, either private money or a gold standard. So give me your take on the Fed's uh, historic efficacy, and then we'll turn and talk about uh, the alternatives. Throughout most of world history, central banks have been a disaster. You just get too much inflation. But in the last 30 years, they've mostly done a good job. Uh, you praised the Fed. Let's go further. We live in a world where the Mexican Central Bank has done really quite a good job for some period of time. And now in Mexico, there's a, a mortgage market that's booming. Rates of price inflation, uh, they're higher than they should be, but they're entirely tolerable. They're in the, the upper range of single digits last time I looked. Uh, all around the world, central banks uh, are doing a good job. Why is that, you think? I think it's that financial markets have the ability to monitor central banks in a way they hadn't before. And some smaller number of politicians initially showed that a war against inflation was politically popular. Uh, Thatcher and then Reagan supporting Volcker. And this proved to be a political winner. So the whole world said, hey, let's do this. We'll be better off in the long run. We'll survive the pain in the short run. And of the developed countries, they've pretty much all brought down their rates of price inflation to good levels. Now, the question of, you know, should we have free banking? You know, imagine that we used American Express traveler's checks as money, and they would compete with Thomas Cook traveler's checks, other private currencies backed by gold, backed, backed by whatever. Uh, one worry I have is just the systemic risk issue. But if one of the issuers went under, there would be macroeconomic consequences. But I think the bigger question is just what would the advantage be? Well, let's lay that out a little before we get to the advantages or disadvantages. Right now, uh, we have something that looks like private money, Visa, American Express, or credit cards. But that's not what you're really talking about. We're really talking about an opportunity to – what, what, what is it exactly? How would private money work in today's world and why don't we have it? It's, is it illegal? 
Is it because we can't pay uh, our taxes in, in these private currencies? Kind of can now. We can play with visas. So what what would be – when people talk about private money or competing monies, um, what, what would be different in that world institutionally that we don't have now? There's some different definitions of private money, but I don't even think that privateness versus publicness is necessarily the important distinction. You could say my bank check right now is a form of private money. If I give it to you, you'll take it, right? Probably. You trust me? You Probably trust the Tyler. bank? Uh, what makes the bank check quote-unquote work, even though it's private, is that we have deposit insurance. So if the bank behind that check were to experience a problem, uh, my deposit would still be good. So in that sense, you can have privateness as long as you have an underlying governmental guarantee of the broader money supply and nominal aggregate demand. And there are regulations on what the bank can do to keep it from exploiting that guarantee. That's right. And that, I think, is the key feature. So if we did away with greenbacks and had some private company, like, issue the money, and maybe you had competing companies, one would be red, the other would be blue, the other would be green monies, that wouldn't make such a big difference. What makes the difference is what kind of guarantee is behind it all. But right now, I, I, is it – I like the different color option. It would be a little variety in our money. We could maybe put you know athletes on the faces instead of presidents or, sure. or actresses. Attractive and actors, women. Right. It would definitely make some of those uh, – trading cards, uh, attractive, but w why don't we have such money now? Is there an easy answer to that? Originally, one big reason for government money was that governments wanted to earn seniorage by issuing money and, in essence, acting like a counterfeiter, printing up money, buying goods and services, and getting something for nothing. And it's an effective way to finance government, potentially, in a world where income tax would be very costly to, to gather. So a lot of Poor countries, underdeveloped, undeveloped countries throughout history have found that a very appealing way to finance. Absolutely. And Zimbabwe does that now. So that was the initial motive. Seniorage is no longer an important source of government revenue in most wealthy countries. Uh, but government printing the money has stuck. You could move to different colors and prettier pictures. Um, but it wouldn't be a large gain. And government, I think, is suspicious of giving up a claim it has to doing something really important. So it hasn't happened. But is it illegal? Well, is what illegal? Well, could I issue... Um, what institutional or cultural norms would have to be put in place to allow a competitive money source, a source, of, a medium of exchange that would have a potentially lower rate of inflation associated with it, It'd be a more stable source, store of value? Is there... Is there Something stopping that now? Uh, no. Keep in mind there are at least two functions of money. One is medium of account. So today you can write contracts in terms of any unit you want, an index of housing prices, gold, uh, your future salary. This, this is possible. It's usually not done, but you can do it, and sometimes it's done. And then there's money as a medium of exchange. But if you and I want to go off and, you know, I trade my house for your house or whatever, or my book for your book, uh, there are no legal restrictions on that. These private monies are not legal tender. We cannot force other people to take them. But the fact that usually you resort to good old greenbacks and your checking account, uh, to me, is a sign that it's a relatively efficient way of doing business. But would the courts enforce a contract written in a different currency? Sure. There are currency swaps all the time in foreign currencies. 
if we wrote a contract saying, unless you do not perform certain actions, you have to give me your house, courts will enforce that. Sure. Okay, well, let's... But I want the money, right? I'd rather have uh, Uncle Sam greenbacks. It's just easier. There are a lot of economies of scale to liquidity. Once one central asset becomes the most highly liquid, I want to be paid in that. There are exceptional cases, but that tends to be self-reinforcing. Well, there's some then, well, let's move to this issue of, of, of a centralized alternative. There, there are some people who argue that that because the United States no longer uh, keeps the gold standard, uh, does not back up the currency with, with a particular uh, regimented um, amount of gold, that somehow the whole thing is a house of cards, that this whole... Um, these green pieces of paper are a sham, and we're always at risk of of a financial collapse because they don't really have any backing. Is there any truth to that? As you mentioned yourself, the American economy has been quite stable. Uh, stock prices have been high and often rising. Uh, but I would say anyone who feels their U.S. greenbacks are a sham, uh, I would be happy to accept them. I would uh, sell you some some bartered personal services in return. Uh, the dollar holds up because people expect other people will continue to take dollars. But that appears to be a remarkably robust mechanism, at least as long as your country is the United States of America and not, say, Zimbabwe. And so what's the argument uh, for those people who are in favor of, of a return to the gold standard? Uh, what's, their, what's their argument? I think in some part... Some of it's psychological, Yeah, some of it's said. a mere fetish, but a lot of people believe that the price level will be more stable and there will be fewer business cycles. How would that work, a gold standard? Why would it, what would be the argument for how it would lead to, uh, uh, say, less price variability? The supply of gold is pretty stable. There's a lot of gold out there. To produce more gold, you have to dig it up out of the ground. That's harder to do than to just have the Fed uh, tune up the printing presses, so to speak. But if you look at the price of gold, the price of gold is pretty volatile. Lately, the price of gold has been flirting with $1,000 an ounce. And if we were on a gold standard and the price of gold were volatile, the price level would be volatile as well. So I, I think this view that it would be more stable is a sham. It would be much less stable. The gold standard would work best if the whole world were on it. But if one country were to go on it, I think it'd be a disaster for that country. The price of gold fluctuates now partly in response to, uh, well, let me say it differently, the supply of gold, as you say, is fairly stable. There's an enormous stock of it outstanding. So new discoveries are relatively unimportant. It's not just that it's uh, expensive to find new gold. It's that even if you found new gold, your ability to affect the total amount would be relatively small. That's right. So there'd be – the argument is that there'd be these slow accumulation – slow increases in the total stock and therefore the – price shock would be relatively small. You point out that, well, but if you actually look at the price of gold, it's it's not a nice steady small growth rate every year or or, or dec decrease every year from, from increased supply or reductions due to, you know, wearing gold wearing out or being lost or whatever. But in fact, it's quite erratic. But that erratic aspect is due to speculation in response to other price levels, right? Price of the dollar and other and other and other assets. Or is it true necessarily that the price of gold, if it were the central, uh, 
if the United States uh, government were 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 strain, constrained in its supply of dollars by the supply of gold, is it true that the price of gold would be erratic in that world? Do we know anything about that? But the price of gold, gold is a hedge against bad times, be it terrorist attacks or a nuclear world war or a pandemic or some kind of political collapse. Uh, it's also a hedge against bad fiat money performance. Fiat money being the kind that we have, paper. That's right. But if you eliminated volatile fiat money, would the price of gold be stable? A, I don't think so. And B, we genuinely don't know. So I would say, why take the chance when today we have relative stability? The, price, the value of gold might be stable if the U.S. moved to a gold standard. Uh, but maybe gold would still be a hedge against bad things done by the EU or terrorism or war in the Middle East. We don't know. To yeah. me, it seems like an unwise bargain to make that move. Race is an interesting thing I've never thought about, right? If why is gold a hedge against risk, right? In the people in people's mm -hmm. minds, as you say, it's and it's certainly true empirically that when there's high risk of of a war, a catastrophe in the Middle East, the price of gold spikes or, or plunges uh, as people worry about whether their currency or a currency is going to be reliable. Um, I had a when I was a child, a good friend of ours used to come over and 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 bring us Russian rubles uh, from the uh, pre nineteen seventeen uh, Russian government. His father used them for wallpaper because there was no more Russian government when the communists came in. They repudiated the rubles of the past and they were suddenly worthless. That would be a very depressing turn of events if you were storing your your life savings in rubles. And of course, many people's savings were wiped out by that that revolution. So people say, yeah. So what do they do? They turn to gold. If you ask yourself, why would you turn to gold? It's just a piece of, it's metal. Well, it, it's become a norm for what you do when things go bad, but it's kind of no more reliable than the dollar or any other fiat money That's is right. real. It doesn't really protect you from a disaster, a nuclear holocaust. Having a lot of gold isn't a good thing. Why is there a feeling that, that having a lot of gold is going to make preserve your wealth in the face of, a, say, a new, God forbid, a nuclear holocaust? Well, it's the assumption that, well, gold will have a high price. But there's no necessary reason for that, is there? I think a lot of it's human psychology and that it's focal. I think originally gold in part had this role because small amounts of it were quite valuable. And if you were a refugee, say you were escaping the Nazis, and you carried a small amount of gold on your person— you could in some way hide it or store it, and it would be worth a lot. So historically, there are some objective reasons for gold being the hedge against risk. But I'm not sure they necessarily apply in today's world. And a lot of it is, as you say, inherited psychology. I mean, it goes back to, I think, a discussion we had sometime earlier, and you can talk about diamonds, which are um, these weird little rocks that come out of the ground. But little is the key word. Yeah, they're little, and, and we associate them with um, promises kept and sometimes broken, uh, of the marital kind and, and of, with jewelry. And that they're beautiful. They're beautiful things, diamonds. And gold is, has a certain att physical attractiveness to it, but outside of dentistry where its use is actually, I think, plummeting. Mm -hmm. It's hard to understand why it's a source of value. Um, so you're suggesting that if we move to a gold standard, our price level would be more erratic rather than less erratic. I don't, I'm not sure it would be more erratic. I think there would be more swings in the downward direction, and that would be bad. 
Whether the actual variance would go up is less clear. But I view shock deflations as very harmful to an economy. They appear to be. And uh, the chance of that is much higher under a gold standard. The Great Depression is associated with a sudden downward shock in the money supply, and I think there's still some... Uh, is there any understanding of where that came from precisely? Where the Great Depression came from? The monetary shock that's associated with the Great Depression. Is there a consensus on whether that was uh, endogenous or exogenous? Did it come from a series of events that were somewhat natural, or were they due to Fed, uh, Federal Reserve uh, uh, incompetence at the time? It's a mix of both. Uh, there were initial shocks to the gold market, and at that point, central banks then let uh, larger magnitudes of the money supply collapse. There was no deposit insurance. There were, in the United States, a lot of bank failures. And then the money supply really plummeted. So even at a fairly late date, if deposits had been guaranteed and the Fed had simply printed up a lot more money, I don't think we would have had a Great Depression. Now, I think you can, with a lot of hard work, argue that possibly a gold standard could do as well as what we have now. I don't think a gold standard is crazy. But again, what one thinks the advantage is, unless you think what we have now will collapse into 20% rates of inflation, I just don't see uh, the big advantage of a gold standard. There's also a problem of transition. If we want to move to a gold standard, how do we link the dollar to gold? What's the right value? It's not today's market price, but what market price is it? Uh, governments tend to be very bad at making these kinds of monetary transitions. I fear we'd make a transition at the wrong rate. There'd be a sudden inflation or deflation. And that alone right there would wreck the whole experiment and we'd give up on it. So I just I just don't see it as a winner, really. I think it has a certain mythical appeal. It, it um, I think two things. I think I think there are some serious uh, proponents of it who would argue that the long term, if we could make that transition, the long term path would be would be healthy. But I think there are other people who are argue, who argue for gold standard because they think there's something sinister or uh, malevolent about what the Fed is doing right now, this idea that the money's not really backed by anything, that the Fed is jerking around uh, assets, investors, real variables, et cetera. And I just, uh, I think with you, I don't see that. I see uh, the occasional mistake of timing, but overall, a uh, pretty good situation. I think the real question is a political economy question What's going to happen over the next 25 to 50 years, 10 years? Is it plausible to believe that the stability of the last 25, that the underlying causes of that are going to persist, or are there worries that they, that they may not? That's a key question, I think. I worry a bit that independent central banks will go away. I think they're being monitored more than ever before. They get more media attention. Everyone has an opinion. And over time... Uh, we, we may reach a new kind of equilibrium. But even if Congress had a more direct role in setting monetary policy, uh, I'm not sure we'd get high rates of inflation. Keep in mind, Milton Friedman himself once suggested that. He said, just make Congress responsible, that they have to raise their hand and say, I called for this rate of inflation. If you look at the New Zealand system, the explicit contract with the central bank, which is set by the legislature, that's essentially a central bank which is not at all independent, it's in thrall to the elected government, and they've had fairly low rates of inflation, and whatever problems they've had, it has not been because of their central bank. So I think we're likely to move toward more accountability. 
uh, in the good sense and the bad sense, that makes me nervous. But I'm not convinced it's going to lead us to 10, 20, 100 percent rates of inflation. Well, when, we, when I interviewed Friedman for Econ Talk uh, oh, a couple years back, he um, year and a half ago maybe, he explicitly said, "I don't know if he this is true, but he downplayed the influence of his research on uh, helping f- central banks behave more wisely." And instead attributed the improvement in performance to the observation that New Zealand had successfully destroyed inflation mm-hmm. through a change in the policy of a central bank under, I think, uh, Donald Brash, I think, was the central That's banker right. who Friedman attributed this to, although he probably had read some of Milton's <laughs> work, I suspect. But um, the political mechanism you're talking about for New Zealand, is that a recent phenomenon or does that go back away? Do you know? It's from the early 90s. Okay. So this is a recent change then, That's not, right. not the change that Friedman was talking about. No, I think it's what Friedman was talking about. No, he went. But he was going back to the to the to the. I would say this. I thought it was the '60s and '70s that that the experience of Donald Brash. I thought it was in the '70s. No, he. I think Brash took over in '89. Oh, uh, really? Someone could check. But the the main New Zealand experience with the Reserve Bank Act is in the early '90s. Uh, de facto, they started observing it before de jure it was passed. So when it starts is debatable. Okay. But by 1992, it was in full swing. Uh, maybe you could date it from 1989, 1990. Okay, well, I'll, I'll check that out. We'll, we'll put a note up on the uh, the highlights if, if I've got that wrong. Um, I think it's worth pointing out, by the way, that that the independence of the Fed is something of a misnomer, just as even the independence of the Supreme Court is something sure. of, of, a, of an illusion. And people say, well, the Supreme Court justices, they're appointed for life. So obviously they're, they're insulated from political... Uh, political forces, but they're not. Obviously, they, they want to be invited to the right parties and have a good time and, and be loved and and treated with uh, respect and adulation like any human being. And so they are subject to political and market forces. They track public opinion. It's yeah. remarkable. Yeah, which is dis- depressing. Um, my daughter's taking uh, American history right now in high school, and she's got a wonderful teacher. She's actually learning something, which is very exhilarating, uh, that, that she's learning something about the founding. And and the idea of the Supreme Court, the idea of the three branches being independent of each other, is uh, there is truth to it. But, of course, these political forces do matter. And, and as you say, you can look at the, the actual behavior appears to be somewhat responsive rather sure. than, uh, than independent. That is independent as long as it does what we want it to do, <laughs> yeah. you might say. But it's important to keep in mind Friedman's main recommendation, a rule for money supply growth, that's been completely abandoned, and the move toward price stability really only took hold once people realized they needed to abandon Milton's rule. Why do you say that? Explain. The original prescription of Friedman to have the money supply grow at 3% a year. He even suggested a computer could be put in place that's to make right. sure that happened. And this was very popular, say, in the early 80s. Uh, now today it has no defenders left for, from really any point of view. One problem is which money supply... They all move at different rates. But there's also the general perception that if you truly freeze the rate of growth of the money supply, that short-term interest rate or exchange rate volatility will reach intolerably high levels. The closest anyone came to trying this were the Swiss in the early to mid-80s. They somewhat tried a Friedman-esque money supply growth rule. They abandoned it. And what became popular are these price rules, which say target a broad range for price-level growth, inflation growth, 
And don't worry too much about the money supply. Just try to get a rate of price inflation that's too bad. And don't think in terms of a computer. Realize you'll need a lot of discretion to get there. And that was a big learning process that required a fair amount of pain in the 80s. And it's only once people figured that out that the low inflation prescription really started to make sense. Yeah, I'm not sure Milton would agree with that. Again, I, I have to go back and listen to that uh, podcast on monetary policy, and we'll put a link up to it uh, in this podcast. Uh, I, I know that's not what people say, but I think – I'm not sure that's um, what they do. But I agree with you. I, I think there's been a retreat from the money supply as tool and a focus on the supposed outcome, sure. the price level or the rate of inflation. And I've always thought that that was because the Fed was basically um, wandering around in the dark, uh, that the levers of monetary policy weren't as, as reliable as they at least once thought were thought That's to be. Right. And so what they do is they kind of so – they can't really control the money supply. They're not even really sure what it is exactly. They just push stuff around when they see prices doing something that they're not sure about. But, of course, the other issue is – and I, coming back to the independence, and I think this is the – maybe we'll close on the, the political economy of this – um, the Fed really is in America and central banks elsewhere I assume have similar uh, tension although they're in some sense their mandate is to achieve a stable rate of money supply growth or a stable rate of inflation or a stable level of prices different measures they also get tied up in this uh, stabilization of the overall economy uh, and they don't have enough instruments to really manipulate both at the same time. So right now we're in a very strange situation where, as you pointed out earlier, unemployment is relatively low by historical standards. And yet somehow there's this belief that we're on the verge of a, of a, of a very serious recession. Uh, and so the Fed is being implored and I think is responding to political forces rather than economic decisions, uh, narrowly defined, is being implored by political forces to – quote, juice up the economy, to mm -hmm. stimulate the economy via these lower uh, federal, federal funds rate, either whatever, through whatever mechanism you want to believe they affect things. We talked about that earlier. But given that unemployment is relatively low, the odds are it's just going to cause inflation and be unlikely to have any beneficial effects. What do you think they're doing? Well, the people who run the Fed, they're very you? smart. Uh, there's no one else out there in the world who knows anything about monetary policy that they don't. I think they're in a position where, for credit market reasons, money supply aggregates are starting to fall, or would be falling if the Fed had not done anything. And the Fed is propping those up, and in the process of propping them up, they're giving us higher rates of price inflation. I don't think they're making anything better. All they're doing is stopping things from getting worse. And I think it gets back to the point when you have a big and negative real shock, there's really nothing the Fed can do that will make people very happy. They're simply in an impossible position, and they're in one now. I don't think in ex-ante terms they've made any particular mistake, but they've ended up painted into a kind of corner where we're getting higher price inflation, we're treading water, we may or may not avoid a, a formal recession, but we have something already that feels a lot like a recession, and uh, that's just what you get when things go bad. This real shock that you, we talked earlier about the potentially uh, as the the breaking of this uh, housing uh, market bubble, if if that's what it is, what would you do? If what you would were, I do? If you, you know, 
could say if you were president, if you were head of the Fed, like, I'll give you a lot of powers. If you wanted to, quote, fix this uh, the housing problem, what would your policy prescription be? I don't think there's any short-term fix. I agree with the notion that home prices should be allowed to find their appropriate level. Uh, but keep in mind, that means that in the short term, nominal aggregate demand will fall. And to offset that, the Fed has to be fairly activist. And that gives us high rates of price inflation. It's a bit like what we're getting. If you ask me what I'd do, I'd pick up the phone. I'd call Ben Bernanke and I'd say, hey, Ben, what should I do? That's what I'd do. What would Ben say? <laughs> well, we see what he's doing. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's all he's got. Would, would he? Uh... I don't think I'd have any more than he does. Yeah, I don't think so either. Uh, my guest today has been Tyler Cowan, professor of economics at George Mason University. Tyler, thanks for joining us. Thanks. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Money is a complicated subject, and I'm sure we'll do more podcasts in the future on the role of money in our economy. I wish I'd done a better job preparing for this week's conversation. After finishing talking with Tyler, I came across some material that you might enjoy, and we put links to that material up at the page for today's podcast at econtalk.org. One is an article by Lawrence White, part of the concise encyclopedia of economics called Competing Money Supplies, which looks at the issue of private money. I think you'll find it an interesting counterpoint to my conversation with Tyler. And to my embarrassment, I forgot to listen to the podcast with Milton Friedman on money before interviewing Tyler. I encourage you to go back and listen to it again or for the first time or read the transcript. We have the, up as well, and we'll have links to uh, all of that at the podcast page for today's podcast. Tyler was right about Don Brash. It was in the late 1980s and early 1990s. What Friedman was talking about that I did not remember correctly was that the New Zealand experience with Don Brash – as central banker is what encouraged the world's central bankers to turn toward inflation targeting. And Tyler's right that the world's central banks now focus on inflation targeting. They aim to have a stable price level or a stable inflation rate rather than using Friedman's original idea of a stable growth in the money supply, some uh, rule of, say, a 3% growth rate in the money supply that, along with the 3% growth rate in the economy as a whole, would lead, to say, to stable prices. But Milton's claim that I should have brought up with Tyler, and I forgot because I hadn't looked at that, listened to that podcast in a while. But Milton's claim is that the way to hit that inflation target is indeed to pay attention to the money supply rather than interest rates, and that the stable growth of the money supply is the key variable for having a stable inflation rate. Back in our podcast, my podcast with Milton in 2006, he said that while the Fed talks about interest rates, they certainly act as if they only pay attention to money. And in a follow-up to that interview, he sent me data on M2, which is the measure of the money supply the government follows that he felt was the relevant one, that the government collects, excuse me, that he felt was the relevant one. And he argued in his email to me that the smoothness of growth in M2 in the last 25, 30 years was the key to our macroeconomic stability and the relatively low and relatively stable rates of inflation that have been achieved in the United States. And he argued that the Fed was very aware of that. So I think Milton was saying that, yes, inflation targeting is what the Fed does, but they get there by playing with the money supply, whether they admit it or not. And then in general, a steady growth in the money supply is how you get to a stable inflation rate. Occasionally, velocity may change, velocity being the rate at which money turns over or changes hands in the economy. 
but that in general, central banks do follow something close to a steady money rule in hopes of hitting those inflation targets, the ones they do talk about. Well, I hope you aren't more confused than when we started, and I hope you haven't been driven mad. As I said before, I'm sure we'll come back to these topics. See you next week. Uh, our guest will be Mike Munger talking about subsidies. Take care. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.